Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Newell is a nationally recognized innovation expert whose work is transforming how the government and other large organizations compete and drive growth. He served as the director of the U.S. Army's Rapid Equipment Force, REF, reporting directly to senior leadership of the Army. He was charged with rapidly finding, integrating, and employing solutions to emerging problems faced by soldiers on the battlefield and was responsible for the Army's first deployment of mobile manufacturing labs, smartphones merged with tactical radio networks, and tactical drones. He is the founder and co-author with lean startup founder Steve Blank of Hacking for Defense, H4D, an academic program that focuses on solving national security problems. He is also the co-founder and board director of the Common Mission Project, a 501c3 nonprofit responsible for creating an international network of mission-driven entrepreneurs, including through programs like H4D. And he is the CEO of BMNT, an innovation consultancy and early stage tech accelerator that helps solve some of the hardest real world problems in national security, state and local governments, and beyond. In this episode, he shares with us lessons from accelerating innovation in the military that can be applied to business, the key stages you should be focusing on in your innovation pipeline, why driving innovation is a social problem, not a technical one, and the first step you should take right now if you want to elevate innovation in your organization. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete Newell. Pete, thank you so much for being here with us and taking the time to share your insights. No, thanks for the invite. So just to get to know you a little bit personally, we ask all of our guests the same question to open up, which is, this may have nothing to do with your work at all. If you really know me, you know that. How would you complete that sentence? If you really know me, you know that I am driven by passion. I'm a classic, I call it a classic introvert and sometimes call it a crackpot. <laughs> and I say that because my great-grandfather was a fantastic photographer. He was an inventor. He was an architect. He was a lot of things. And what he mostly was is somebody who followed his passions and worked on things that were truly important to him until they weren't. And then he went on to the next thing. If you truly know me, you understand that I am driven by the things that I'm passionate about that have my attention. And I tend not to follow the mainstream unless the mainstream is moving in the direction that I think is where it ought to be. And it's not to say that people are right or wrong about what they do. It's simply, that's not me. Yeah, I got you. I got you. What is your definition of strategy? Ooh, strategy is the thing that connects where you are to where you want to be. And it's scary because I was trained as a strategist by the military. Right. And the folks who trained me would shoot me for that definition. Oh, really? Huh. Oh, absolutely. How would the military's definition be different? I mean, these are people who grew up with Germany and Klaus was all about ends, ways, and means. Yep. I prefer to simplify and say, I know where I'm at today, and I know where I need to be. Mm-hmm. Well, that thing that's going to get me to there is literally the strategy that has to be built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Gotcha. Your definition is more broadly applicable and their definition maybe is for the military context, but they're consistent, right? So just give us a little bit of background. You know, in the intro, I talked about your military experience that you run this skunk works. Just give a little bit of background on what is the topic or passion that has led you to do what you do now. I would say simply it is problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I never realized that, quite frankly, I joined the military by accident. I say that because I grew up in a military family where I said, absolutely no way, not doing it. I had moved all over the world and I wanted to do my thing. <laughs> and then I went to college and ran out of money. So literally, I enlisted in the National Guard in order to get money to go to school. And I realized in that period that the Guard gave me, you know, one is a sense of discipline, but two is the things I worked on every day were different. And I was constantly problem solving. I graduated from college and people asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I really love what I'm doing. And I'm passionate about being environment where I'm challenged constantly. So I want to keep doing that. And even as I got into the military, I tell folks that I got in trouble a lot because I wasn't satisfied with the status quo. And simply telling me, we do things this way because that's the rule was never acceptable to me. Every once in a while, I would simply do it my way. Then I would catch flack from it. And then somebody else would come up and say, hey, we're so glad you did that because we've been trying to fix that forever. And so there was always this friction between me and at least one of my bosses that kept me on the verge of being fired. And then with other bosses, and thankfully it was usually the higher boss who said, keep doing what you're doing because you're putting pressure on the system. Um, I just adopted that mode. I never knew that that was entrepreneurship. I never knew that that's what I was doing. I just did it. And it wasn't until they put me in charge of the rapid equipment force. I thought it was handled the keys to the Ferrari of Skunk Works. And simply told to just let yourself loose and go find problems and solve them. How many problems did you find? Oh, you know, a three-year period, and I can actually map this out. When I realized that we weren't generating problems to solve, we were actually just building products that people told us to. I built the organization to look for problems. 1,340 problems. How many was that again? 1,340. 1,340. Wow. Wow. We turned that 1,300 problems into 860 distinct things that we needed to work on. So just to curate that number down, eventually started 360 projects and eventually turned those 360 projects into 115 pieces of equipment we sent to the battlefield. So you have that experience and then you've translated it into a process or operating system. And I think there are 10 steps or so to that system. Can you just walk us through, or at least like a high level, what the key steps are? Sure. And I kind of give you the background on why the operating system is so important. First is I realized that the process of innovation isn't a technology challenge. It's really about sociology. Interesting. What do you mean by that? It goes like this. So we suffer a speed problem. We are challenged because of the pace at which technology changes and the way it's adopted by people and adapted. Oftentimes, people get hold of tech, and before you solve the first problem you thought you had, you have a whole new problem because technology has completely changed the battlefield of the dynamic you're working. It happens to commercial companies as well. We're challenged by the speed, by the length of time it takes us to discover problems to solve. We're challenged by how long it takes us to translate those things into plain English that other people will understand. 
We're challenged by how long it takes us to recruit a diverse group of people to first validate we're working on the right problem, prove that we have a potential solution, and define defense a potential pathway by which we can actually deliver that solution. Diverse sounds like an intentionally chosen word there. It is very intentionally. And then the final step is we're challenged by how long it takes us to actually transition a worthwhile project into something that scales and is delivered. So all of those speed challenges led us back to the pipeline. I talked about the number of problems I sourced, 11 or 1,300. We curated that down to 860 distinct things in seven portfolios. We did discovery by running 360 projects to determine right problem, correctly defined, have a potential solution, and have a viable pathway by which we can deliver that solution incubated 115 distinct pieces of equipment by delivering them to the battlefield and putting them into soldiers' hands and getting feedback on them, and eventually delivered 20 programs of record, like Switchblade. So what I just described to you, the act of sourcing problems and opportunities is step one. Curating those things into things that are ready to be worked on, things that are prioritized, so I know what I'm working on for the right reason. And then doing discovery, which is the heart of what lean startup methodology does for you is it forces you to discover the right answers to things. And you've written with Steve Blank, who's the grandfather of Aline. And- I have. I do really closely with both Steve Blank and Alex Osterwalder and continue to collaborate with both of them. And then after discovery, you go into this incubation phase where you're trying to improve the technology you're using. You're trying to improve the capacity of the team that you brought together. And this is where the diversity comes to play. Without a diversity of thought on a team, it's really hard to get a startup-like idea to move. And then you're trying to improve your ability to actually deliver that tech to the first couple of customers or users. So I call it the adoption of what you're trying to do. And coming out of incubation, you're writing big checks to scale the things that are the best solutions you put on the battlefield. So the pipeline becomes source, curate, discover, incubate, and transition. Mm-hmm. Love it. And where have you seen large organizations, where do they most often falter? What's the big trap? You know, oddly enough, they're all very focused on the right side of that, the transition. I got to deliver things. And because they're super efficient, they try and shoot, you know, it's like a golden BB. I'm only going to source a couple of things and I'm only going to curate one or two and I'm going to do discovery on one and then I'm going to incubate one and then I'm going to do something. And quite frankly, that's a failure model. Part of the beauty of a pipeline is that you start with a lot of volume and you make hard decisions about the things that go through it. So that increases the velocity, both in terms of speed and pressure, because it allows you to focus your resources on a smaller and smaller group of things until you pile everything you own on the things that you know are going to win. But you can't get there without having a large pool of things you're sourcing. The problem is most organizations don't source a large pool of things. They're just not built to do that. The military has that problem. The government has that problem because they're overly focused on being efficient. The venture world in Silicon Valley does exactly the opposite. You think about it. Silicon Valley says, I'm going to create a thousand new businesses a year, and I'm going to spend the next two years killing off 999 of them so that I put all my money on the one that's going to be a unicorn. They've mastered the pipeline in terms of the number of deals they source, what they invest small money in, and ever shrinking that down to where they're putting all their money on just a few things. They don't consider something that they've killed as a failure. They consider that the price of the education and finding the thing they want to put all the money on. So how do you help organizations or how does an organization then flip that relationship to failure? and start viewing it as learning. One is we've looked at all the methodologies and activities out there, whether it's lean, agile, 
uh, design thinking. And we've mapped where they're best suitable. We look at the pipeline, and the first thing we'll do is ask organizations what decisions they're making to decide what moves from one phase of the pipeline to the next. And oftentimes, they can't define the decision or who makes it, which means things are just flowing through the pipeline. And when you get the wrong things in the pipeline, it's consuming your bandwidth, which clogs it. Decisions are designed to get rid of the things that would clog the pipeline. Um, once you figure out what the decision is, you start asking, okay, so what are the insights that led you or will lead you to making a decision about what moves from one phase to the next? And oftentimes, you'll find is 75% of the insight is coming from gut instinct of a senior executive. It's not based on fact. But they're literally having to make gut calls because they have nothing to work with. So if I understand the insights we need to generate, then I can look at what data do I need to generate the insight. Then I can look at what activities and what methodologies I need to craft the data. So simply working backwards into that system, and then we'll look at the organization and say, okay, what do they do today and what's working well, what's not? And how well does it fit the pipeline? With that knowledge, we just go in and start triaging the parts that aren't working. And first and foremost, I'll go back to the sociology question is, we'll go in and teach them the language around the pipeline. I think what a common culture is based on a common language. And innovation and entrepreneurship are not widely understood in large enterprise organizations. So the language of innovation and entrepreneurship are not normally part of the culture. Yeah. Nobody has defined how innovation is connected to the business outcomes of the organization. And you have to get them to define that language so that you understand this is why we do what we do, because it, it means something at the end of the day someplace else in the organization. Yeah. That triaging, is that related to what you talk about as being self-sabotaging processes? Yes. When you get into actually, you know, people talk about the frozen middle and why things will never work and never change. Explain the frozen middle because we haven't brought that up here yet. Yeah. And you realize is that we created the frozen middle. They didn't create themselves. Is We gave people a bunch of rules. I pick on compliance people all the time. It's like if you give somebody the job of doing compliance, they're going to do the best job they can absolutely be to make sure you're the most compliant entity ever. Nobody ever said, be a compliance person, but we want you to be barely adequate. We don't want a bunch of rules and other things that impinge our ability to do other things. So just barely be compliant and that'll work. It's a completely mind change of, so you'll find people in the middle who said, you know, in my case, it was a program manager. I'm defending the government's money and I'm holding this person to standard and doing things. And I realized is that I'm trying to work with a small company who's never worked with the government. And you just told me that you're withholding payment on an invoice that's going to go across the first of the month and they've got a payroll to make because they didn't insert a paragraph into the invoice that's correct. That's self-sabotaging yourself because you're ruining a partnership with somebody I worked for months to create simply because of a technical compliance issue. Rather than getting on the phone and fixing it on the spot and treating them as a partner in what you're trying to do. So if we just pick that example out, how do you correct that? Because it sounds like they have a specific mission that sometimes is not aligned with the overall mission. How do you align those? First of all, as a leader who's charged with doing this, you have to go in and actually look at what are the issues. I would never have known it had my good friend Steve Spear, who's a professor at MIT. Steve was helping me through some things. And he said, I want you to come talk to this guy and listen to the story. And he knew that I'd be horrified when I heard it. But the things that my company does so well is help people root out those things so that there's a conversation between leadership at the high end and in the middle about what that job really is about. And they can work out, you know, okay, we have to do it this way, but is there a different way we could do this less painful? 
doesn't have to be the rigid system all the time. They can decide when they're going to take an exception to the rules and when they're going to accept risk and compliant for something in order to get leaps and bounds beyond where they were. You can't get there without having a conversation between leaders, though. Is there an example of an organization that you're allowed to share with us that maybe gets it more right than most organizations? You know, the one that we're working with quite a bit right now is the U.S. Navy, in particular on their unmanned efforts. You know, the idea of getting lots of unmanned vessels into the sea rather than building just a few manned ones every year. That's kind of a tectonic shift for the Navy to go from 35 and 50-year programs to three to five-year programs with lots of things at sea. And first and foremost, that both systems have to work alongside each other. We're not getting rid of the manned Navy. We're trying to create something that works in and alongside it. They really have taken to the pipeline and the methodology and the definition of this is why we do innovation and this is where it relates to warfighting. All the way up from the vice chief of naval operations down to the guy who runs you know, Task Force 59 who's doing the experimentation with unmanned systems out in the sea someplace. So even over the past year, it's stunning to see the change that happened as they adopted a common language for what innovation was. And they adopted the pipeline. They reorganized themselves to actually build a pipeline and to discipline it to do what they wanted. Fascinating. Yeah, I don't have a military background, but I have spent most of my life studying strategy and business concepts. And I don't have the exact number, but 90% of them came out of the military modern management theory, even agile, right? Steve Blank says comes from UDA. And so I think if you trace modern management principles, you'll find that a large percentage comes from military. Yeah, that whole discussion on speed I had, you know, it comes from my background. John Boyd was one of the first guys whose theory I read as a young lieutenant in the Army. Understanding speed on a battlefield is what keeps people alive. I translated that same concept to this idea of increasing the speed at which we understand problems and deliver things to the battlefield, keeps people alive. Fascinating. Yes. So you apply UDA to the left side of the funnel as well. Uh, so the idea is you don't get speed without killing things off. You can't do everything fast, but you can experiment to figure out what the best things to do fast are and put your money and time and energy on those and quit trying to make everything equal as it goes. You have to pick your winners. Right, right, exactly. Because that funnel has to be narrow. And Alex Osterwald was on this podcast as well. And he talked about you got to increase your kill rate. And I guess what gives you the shifting of seeing failure failure is learning gives you kind of the openness to increase your kill rate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I've got so many more questions, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So there's two last questions. The first is just getting practical is what does a chief strategy officer or someone who's leading strategy in a company, where do they start? Yeah, the first one is you need to do a diagnosis of your system rather than go in and start fixing things right away, which is what we find a lot of chief strategy officers newly hired to something going with a mandate to do something. You know, the coaching we give them, in fact, we have written an innovation navigator's book. Part of that includes a self-assessment of how you go in and do a diagnostic in your system of, hey, do you have a pipeline? Do you have metrics and data aligned to that pipeline? What are you doing well and what are you not doing well? And then step back from it and then start to fix the low-hanging fruit right up front. And then you have to start getting into the, you know, are there endemic blockages because of the way the organization designed or simply by the way they treat compliance or by the way, you know, leadership works? Those are the harder ones, but you can start to see them and they become glittering. And that's when we start building teams to take on the individual problems. So diagnose first and then treat. Love it. That sounds like 
how you began that skunk works problem is not going in with a solution, but the first step is to find what the problems are. Absolutely. What are you working on now and how can people connect with you or BMNT? So at the high level, Steve Blank and I and Steve Speeder are collaborating to write a book Something wrapped around the innovation doctrine is how and why do we need a doctrine like this for the military? Because believe it or not, the military does not have a doctrine that connects the output of innovation to warfighting. And that's why we see all these different activities stood up that do things, but they die over time because they're not part of the system. So that's one. The other is that we continue to refine the innovator's navigator's guide. We just finished teaching the second course on this thing with the Navy. We're going to do another spin on it and come out with V2 and set it out publicly. So it'll be publicly available to folks. Then it really talks about the pipeline. It's not publicly available now yet. Not yet. I'm hoping by the end of June, it'll be up and out there. So those are the big ones that we're on to now. Great. You can reach BMNT, obviously, at BMNT.com. We're prolifically on LinkedIn as well and other places like that. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking some time to share it with us. And I know that what you're working on is something that organizations are struggling with. And what I love about it, it really leads us to the individual human level, you know, people being able to shape the future. And so I just want to thank you for that. Thanks so much for the opportunity to chat. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.